Hello, and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greater challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. My name is Jonathan Brown, and I'm an editor in our newsroom here in Moscow. This week on the program, the inner workings of a massive money laundering scheme used to get billions of dollars from Russia to the West have been uncovered this week. Russian oligarchs and people close to the Kremlin have been linked to what's being dubbed the Troika Laundromat. A lot of the money inside the Troika Laundromat, we have no idea what the origin of this money is because they again come from offshore type of companies with two layers of proxies. We'll speak with Paul Radu, executive director of the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, which revealed the scheme. And later, as the Islamic State faces a final onslaught on its last stronghold in Syria, Western governments are struggling to decide what to do with their citizens who joined the terror group. For children, you know, it starts from the very top. Even Vladimir Putin has said that a lot of these kids didn't have a choice to go to the Islamic State or to Syria or to Iraq. They were taken there by their parents, either by their mothers or by their, you know, their fathers. We'll speak with Andrew Roth, the Guardian's correspondent in Moscow, about the Russian government's unique solution to this problem. First up, a cache of leaked banking transactions has revealed details of a money laundering system which allowed Russian oligarchs and individuals linked to the Kremlin to hide assets and move money to Europe. Between 2006 and 2013, nearly $5 billion flowed through a network of around 75 shell companies, which, according to journalists, acted as a hidden investment vehicle, a slush fund, and a tax evasion scheme. Joining us on the line to tell us more is Paul Radu, Executive Director of the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. Paul, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. Can you give us a sense of how this system worked? How is it the dirty money exposed by Sergei Magnitsky could possibly end up in a foundation run by Prince Charles? So um, these uh, laundromats are vast setups. These are cross-border setups, financial setups, where uh, you have... Lots of offshore type of companies from countries such as Panama or the BBI or the Seychelles and others, or the UK even. Um, And then these companies are owned by proxies. And these same companies open up bank accounts with various banks, in our case with Ukyo in Lithuania and Vilnius. Um, And then these bank accounts belonging to these companies are actually owned by proxies. So there's two layers of proxies there. The proxies with the company directorship and the ownership shares and all, and then the second layer of proxies with the banking uh, accounts. Now, the thing is, what we've seen with the previous laundromats is that these are kind of wholesale systems that are offered to everybody. It's, uh, you know, so you see, you know, corrupt politicians, you see businessmen that are not aware, you know, that they're, uh, they're sometimes using the, this, this type of pipelines. You see criminals, you see, you know, high-level uh, Organized crime groups, for instance, Mexican groups were using one of the previous laundromats that we exposed. So all this money comes together via these accounts that belong to the offshore companies, and then they are distributed um, various ways. So this serves a double purpose. One, of course, is to uh, hide the origin of this money uh, and to, di- to disguise the beneficiaries of this money. And the second one is to mix money as much as possible so, so that in the end you really can't tell, you know, 
what's the source of this particular pot of money that ended up, you know, in a property in Spain. So you've you've mentioned criminals, you've mentioned businessmen who might have known that their money was being used in this way and those that might not have. Can you give us a sense of who was contributing this money and where it ended up? So in the case of the Troika Laundromat, uh, what we're seeing is that um, the offshore companies and the bank accounts were managed uh, out of the uh, uh, from uh, from the Troika offices in Moscow. So there's um, lots of emails that go back and forth between the bank in Vilnius and the Troika offices in Moscow. Uh, and these emails, you know, um, also have as a, attachments, various contracts, agreement, and lots of these are bogus. Now. We're also seeing, for instance, uh, money coming in from, uh, say, one example, from a, an Austrian lawyer called Eric Rebasso. Uh, Eric Rebasso uh, wired uh, inside the system, I think, more than 100 million euros. Now, Eric Rebasso, at some point in time, uh, in about 2008, went to the Austrian police and said, look, I launder money for the Russian organized crime. And so he basically blew the whistle on himself because he got scared because at some point you know uh, he realized that uh, he himself was in danger because of this money and because some of the people that he was working for uh, were actually you know criminals stealing from other people and so on and so on so um, you know this is this is a case where we see you know that this Austrian lawyer wired the money back into this uh, these accounts this money initially arrived um, into his account in Vienna in Austria and he had to, to wire this back in uh, in Ukyo. Now the money then went in all sorts of ways. You know, I mean, this this uh, hundred plus uh, plus million euros. So this is just one example. It's the same with the Magnitsky. You know, the companies involved in the Magnitsky case in the fraud exposed by Sergei Magnitsky wired money into the same system where the Austrian lawyer was wiring the money. We see, you know, um, other fraud instances that where the persons involved or the companies involved put the money inside this, uh, what we dubbed the Troika laundromat. So a lot of the money, you know, originates in fraud. A lot of the money inside the Troika laundromat, we have no idea what the origin of this money is because they again come from offshore type of companies with two layers of proxies in the bank accounts and with the companies. And we have no idea what's the origin of that money. And so sometimes the money is being spent on nefarious purposes or nefarious uh, purchases. And, and other times the, the money is being spent on totally innocuous things like medical bills, for instance. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Uh, the first time when we identified um, such usage of uh, funds inside the laundromat was with uh, our previous laundromat, which was the Azerbaijani laundromat. And uh, one case was interesting there where we saw these small bills, I mean, you know, in the thousands of dollars, you know, small compared to the, to the overall amounts that poured through the system, right? And um, uh, uh, the family and um, the first deputy, prime, prime, uh, first deputy PM of Azerbaijan uh, was uh, getting some of this money and some of the services paid for him, you know, especially in clinics, healthcare clinics in Germany. Uh, now, when we talk to these people and ask them, so how come, you know, you got this, uh, this services paid for you? They said that this system acted uh, as a concierge for them, you know. So this is, you know, uh, in a way, uh, you know, a concierge for, for the rich, you know, for, for, the, for the wealthy and the powerful. So this is why I think we see uh, lots of these um, uh, services paid. And it's just not, uh, it's, it's not just uh, healthcare services, you know, it's various, like small expenses, like we found parking in Geneva paid hmm. through these companies. 
Did any of the countries uh, hosting these financial institutions, which made the Troika Londromat possible, raise the alarm or begin to crack down at any point? Uh, no. <laughs> and that's that, that's a big problem, you know, with all this. I mean, all these banks, the banks involved in the laundromat, the banks um, involved, you know, in the, the, the first part of the laundromats, uh, the banks where they saw the bogus contracts, where they saw the money coming in without proper uh, documents, backing them. Um, they've, they've not raised any issue with this. And then the corresponding uh, banks, the, the banks where these smaller banks had their accounts to be able to inject this money into the global financial flows did not raise any issue. There are, I, I mean, uh, to, uh, to, be, to be honest, there are a few instances with the previous laundromats where, for instance, we saw Deutsche Bank uh, asking about certain transactions and saying, what is this, and stopping some of that. But in the economy of the laundromats, that was, I, I'd say, less than 0.5% uh, of everything that went on or, or even lower than that. So what kind of responsibility do governments have to, to crack down on, on the movement of illicit money? And are they doing enough? Um, I don't think they're doing enough for now. I mean, look, I think central banks, uh, you know, all over the world have, you know, have to, to act on this. Um, they, uh, they need to oversee uh, a bit better, you know, the banking system. I, I also think the compliance systems uh, with uh, private banks, you know, need, need to change because, look, I mean, it, it, it does not matter if you hire 1,000 more compliance officers, you know, to look at the transactions. What it matters is to be smart about it to understand how criminals are going to game the system, how criminals are going to use the system, you know. So one one uh, one issue with these laundromats was that, look, these are, you know, sometimes hundreds of thousands of transactions. How can we detect all this, you know, dirty money? And uh, and indeed, it's it's impossible to, to look at all the transactions, you know, and to file all these suspicious activity reports and then work on them and all that. I mean, 1,000 compliance officers for each bank are not enough. But... If you take it, you know, a different way, if you think about it, okay, let's just scrutinize the banks that opened, you know, corresponding bank accounts with us, you know, that would be a huge step forward. And this, uh, this would, uh, this might stem, you know, a lot of the, of the, of the bad money that comes into the system, a lot of the money that is stolen and, uh, and all. All right, Paul, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. The Islamic State's final sliver of territory in eastern Syria has been lit up every night as U.S. forces rained down bombardments on the terror group's last bastion. In recent weeks, thousands of men, women and children have come streaming from the desert to surrender. Many foreigners. The impending demise of the so-called caliphate has left many Western governments at a loss over what to do with their citizens who fled Europe and the US to join the group. Bring them home, leave them to be tried in courts in Iraq and Syria, or simply ignore the problem completely. Joining us on the line is Andrew Roth, Moscow correspondent for The Guardian, who's been reporting on Russia's solution to this problem. Andrew, first of all, thanks for taking the time to, to speak with us. Can you tell us how Russia has decided to, to, to deal with this issue? So I think the first thing to say is that, you know, Russia doesn't really have a full solution to the problem yet. Uh, and there are different, you know, forces and different ideas. But what we've seen so far is the following. Uh, beginning in 2017, about 100 to maybe 120 people were brought back uh, from Syria to Russia, actually directly through Chechnya, and they were repatriated. Uh, these are women and children, about 100 children and maybe 20 or so women. Uh, these are Russian citizens who left the country uh, to join, you know, the Islamic State uh, and stayed there for something like three or four years. 
Uh, and then they came back, and they came back under the system that was uh, sort of led or championed by the leader of Chechnya, that's Ramzan Kadyrov, uh, with the help of the foreign ministry and, and some other sort of federal ministries. Now, uh, this program was sort of going full swing, and then all of a sudden uh, it stopped, kind of full stop. Uh, and the reason was basically because the security apparatus, the FSB, spoke out uh, very strongly against it. They were worried about... You know, what a lot of people in the West right now are discussing, are these people dangerous? Are we going to see terrorist attacks in Russia after this? Uh, so the program was basically cut for an entire year. And there's no real explanation. There's no real official forum for it to be just. Uh, and since then, at the very end of 2018, Russia started repatriating children again. There was, I think, one plane load with 30 kids on it and then another plane load with a similar number. Uh, but they don't bring back women anymore. Uh, and it's very clear that this is still a problem that's being discussed. You know, there's no final decision. What is Russia going to do about this? And the, the last thing to keep in mind is that Russia has a much bigger problem uh, than most Western countries. You know, if the West is just in terms of women and children talking, you know, in the tens, maybe hundreds, uh, Russia is thinking more like, you know, a thousand 2000. Uh, and that's going to be a big problem going forward. So how is Russia justifying the repatriation of women and children? I think it's almost a separate issue. So for children, uh, you know, it starts from the very top. Even Vladimir Putin has said that, you know, a lot of these kids didn't have a choice to go to the Islamic State uh, or to Syria or to Iraq. They were taken there by their parents, either by their mothers or by their, you know, their fathers uh, who they went with. And so in that case, you know, you can't really blame or punish a child uh, for that. It seems like there's more or less consensus around this issue. And that's the reason that those repatriations uh, have continued. Women is a much different issue. And actually, when Vladimir Putin spoke about that during a sort of publicly televised uh, press conference, he did not mention uh, the women in the issue. And that's something that seems to be much closer to the heart of Ramzan Kadyrov. Uh, and officials in Chechnya who want to bring these people back. And there's a couple of different ideas about what their motivations are. One is that it's a security concern. And, you know, several people told me that they think it's safer uh, to have these women uh, who were living under the Islamic State in Russia, where they can be watched by local security services, by the FSB or by local Chechen officials, uh, rather than having them somewhere abroad where they're beyond their control in Turkey uh, in Syria or elsewhere. Uh, the second issue is that Kadyrov sees himself as a sort of international Muslim politician leader, and this is a way to gain status like that by sort of serving as one of the people who can champion the interests of, uh, of Russian Muslims. And the third issue is that I think, you know, it really, you know, it's always hard to talk about what uh, he really believes, but uh, one issue is he really does believe that women, you know, have no choice whether or not to go to the Islamic State, they're bound to follow their husbands. You know, through this kind of patriarchal worldview, it's not really their fault. They serve the same kind of position as kids, you know, and as good wives, they were expected to go there. I'm not saying that that's, you know, the correct thinking, but that's likely the way that he thinks about it. And, and based on my interviews in Chechnya, um, some people did say that, but other women said the complete opposite, you know, that mm -hmm. it was my own choice to go on my own. What was life 
under Islamic State like for these women? And how has it been for them to, to, to readjust to life in Russia? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I spoke with only one woman who was mentioned in the article, but we spoke with, with two women uh, for the piece. Uh, one of them is a mother of uh, five. Her name is Zelina Garibolaev. She's from Dagestan, uh, which is the region neighboring Chechnya. Uh, and the other woman uh, is named uh, Zagidat. She is a mother of four. Uh, she's also from Dagestan and moved to Chechnya uh, shortly after, and I'll get into why in a second. Uh, and, and, you know, they both have kind of similar backstories in that they're from the same region, uh, but their motivation were still slightly different and the conditions under which they went there were different. Um, so the woman who's mentioned in the article, Zelina, she uh, had previously been married to somebody who was uh, involved in the insurgency in Dagestan. Uh, she had actually served a jail term for having an explosive in her car. She said that she was framed. And when she went in 2014, she said she really went of her own free will. You know, she said, I wanted Sharia law. Uh, I thought that I, that that what was what was going on in Syria. And I went, you know, of my own decision. She wasn't married. Uh, and she moved there. And she says that, you know, on the one hand, she was actually happy with the conditions where she was living at the very beginning. When she moved to the country, she moved to a city called Takwa. And uh, more or less, she called it peaceful. She said that uh, visually, a lot of the elements there sort of corresponded to what she wanted to see. Uh, veils, beards, kind of basic uh, Islamic law, etc. But that one thing that at, as soon as she arrived that really ground wrong with her was the kind of extreme control and strictness uh, that was applied to to women who moved to the Islamic State. So she wasn't allowed to leave uh, the place where she was living without uh, somebody to sort of accompany her, to, to keep an eye on her while she was moving around. And for that reason, she decided to marry uh, fairly quickly. Uh, to a fighter, he was killed, uh, and then she married again. So in the end, she had, you know, she met her third and fourth husbands while she was at the Islamic State. Uh, the other thing she said was that uh, pretty quickly there were sort of internal fights between different people who were uh, in the Islamic State, and as she put it, the the good people were pretty quickly driven out by the bad. Uh, in this case, she said there was a lot of violence, sort of between the different groups that were there. And then more executions, attacks on people, violent kind of takings of businesses, etc. Um, you know, so from her perspective, I mean, the way that she talked about it in 2014, she wasn't especially critical, I guess, of the situation when she first moved there. But she said that uh, the condition there changed, especially as the war grew uh, and as the sort of, you know, violence basically where she was living uh, grew in the city. Now, the other woman, Zagidat, she... Uh, followed her husband there. And she also went with one child and she gave birth to two children while she was in the Islamic State. So she was pregnant for a good period of time while she was there, you know, two two years out of four, basically. Uh, and her condition, I think, her situation was a little bit closer to what kind of Russian officials, especially, you know, what, what Chechen officials would like to present, which is that she felt duty-bound to follow her husband there and then was kept there by him. As soon as she got there, she said that she started to recognize that there were real issues with the kind of situation uh, in the city where they were living, which was also Takba, uh, that uh, you know, the, a lot of the stuff here didn't conform with what she expected uh, when she was told stories about you know, living in the Islamic State, how, uh, how the conditions there would kind of represent just kind of ideal uh, Muslim life, you know, as she, as she was told about it. And so when she tried to leave, Shortly after that, her uh, 
her husband basically said, if you leave, then I'm going to take the children away from you and I won't let them go with you. So she said that she was sort of bound to stay there as long as her husband was in the same place. He was eventually killed, uh, she said, by a drone strike. You know, of course, we can't we can't confirm that. Uh, but, you know, that's that's her version of the story of what happened to him. Uh, and at that point, she started to plan her escape. Uh, the way that she ended up doing it was by pretending to be the wife of a local Arab man and of sending uh, her children basically in a separate, <laughs> a separate uh, convoy, a separate car to go north, uh, sneaking out of ISIS territory and, and surrendering basically at a camp. Uh, held by Kurds in the north of the country. And at this point, they had already heard that there might be a way back to Russia through Chechnya. So there's this kind of stories of this way to get out for young women who were, who were stuck in the Islamic State or who said they were stuck there. It was already kind of getting to different people who were there. And so she created this plan where she gets on a motorbike with uh, one man from Syria. He drives her north, and then her kids are, are traveling basically in a separate car. She said along the way that they got split up. And, you know, fighting was pretty heavy at this point. Uh, and she had, uh, you know, two children, including one who was recently born. She was still breastfeeding. Uh, and during the sort of kind of most stressful period of this trip north, she was driving on a motorbike with this man that she had just met. Uh, and her children were in a separate car and they were separated for about 12 or 14 hours. And she said, you know, I thought that they might have been killed in a drone strike. Uh, I thought they might have been hit by shells. You know, I had no idea, basically, what had happened to my children, where they might be. Uh, and, and she said, you know, it was the most stressful period of her entire attempt to escape and of, of all her, her three or four years that she spent there. Uh, eventually, she uh, managed to meet up with the kids to reestablish contact. They had just gotten lost along the way. They, surrounded, they surrendered at the camp in the north. Uh, and she spent something like a month there before... She was almost, you know, slightly, uh, slightly, extremely fortuitously kind of scooped up into this program that was evacuating uh, Russian women, Russian-speaking women from, from former Islamic State and, and flown back to, to Chechnya. So upon getting back to Russia, uh, both of them were arrested in Dagestan, which is the region that they're from. Uh, and that's been the sort of toughest on women who are returning uh, from from ISIS territory. Uh, they were charged with joining sort of an illegal fighting force, and and they were given pretty stiff uh, prison terms on getting back to the country. Uh, and you know, the reason that they're not sitting in prison right now is only because they have young children, and because in Russia you can be given a deferment uh, in order to not spend any time in prison while you're still sort of taking care of young kids. Uh, that said, they claimed. That the conditions, you know, they were subjected to were, well, I guess what you would kind of expect, you know, upon returning to Russia from being in ISIS, which is extremely kind of severe surveillance uh, from the state, people coming to your home at all different times, uh, interrogating you, asking you about who you're meeting with, uh, not just the kind of surveillance you would expect, but I guess something that, that felt rather invasive to them. Uh, and what's surprisingly said... Chechnya apart, um, especially considering its reputation for these kind of very brutal reprisals against people who, who fought there in the insurgency and, the, and their families, is that Chechnya has taken a very light hand uh, on, at, on the people who have returned, especially women and children, in terms of uh, 
obviously surveilling them, but but doing it from much more of a distance and not subjecting them to these kind of very difficult uh, interrogations, etc. That um, that that Dagestan in particular has. So there was a point upon returning, basically, where uh, both of these two women decided that it would be easier for them to live in Chechnya rather than living in Dagestan, just because of the sort of regional differences and because of the political differences between the two places. And so that's what they decided to do. They both moved to uh, Chechnya at this point. They're both advocating uh, for bringing more women back from ISIS territory. Uh, they both, you know, believe basically that they are being surveilled, you know, that their calls are listened to, that people are paying attention to who they're meeting. Uh, but they say that they're not being interrogated, that more or less, you know, basically a year after coming back, um, that their lives are more or less getting back to normal. Uh, they live, they both, you know, receive support from the government. Uh, they do say in their, their home villages that people, you know, are very suspicious of them and where they've been. Um, and so they both kind of live in Grozny and, uh, and their kids go to school together downtown. And, um, and yeah, I mean, they're part of this very small pilot program to bring bring women back from the Islamic State. Do we know how many Russian women and children are still in Iraq or Syria and the likelihood that they'll be brought back to Russia? I mean, there are no exact numbers and even the Russian government has given different estimates. Uh, what I can say is that I met with uh, a human rights advocate who's pretty close to the government in Chechnya uh, and she put the number of, you know, they, they have requests from family members. They're, they have 1,800 requests requests for people, basically. Uh, so we have 1,800 people who are women and children who are in either Syria or Iraq from around the Russian-speaking world. That's, you know, Russia and ex-Soviet countries. So my sense is that the government has come to a consensus that children mostly will be repatriated uh, to Russia. But I think the question about the women is far murkier. Uh, there's really no clear consensus in government, and it's clear that the security apparatus is against them being brought back to Russia. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us, Andrew. Bye. And to finish off, we have something of a public service announcement. Spring is coming in Russia, so brace for attacks from aggressive birds. I think we're in real trouble. Huh? I don't know how this started or why, but I know it's here and we'd be crazy to ignore it. To ignore what? The bird war? Yes, the bird war, the bird attack. Play. Call it what you like. They're massing out there someplace and they'll be back. You can count on it. Vadim Mishin, the head of a bird rehabilitation center at Moscow's Sokolniki Park, recently said that the capital's crows are so protective of their fledglings in spring that they often attack unsuspecting passersby. And he says there's no way of avoiding it. There is good news, though. Mishin also had advice for pedestrians. If you see that crows are acting aggressively and they attack you, it's better to hide behind an umbrella and step back. Good luck out there, everyone. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. It'll help other listeners find us. I'm Jonathan Brown. Our producer today was Piotr Sauer, and thank you to CM Record Studios in Moscow for hosting the show. Join us next week on From Russia with News. News.